today I'm going to open up the Bible and I'm going to read from Mark chapter 12. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 12. I'm going to be reading verses 13 through, nine, uh, through 17. That is today's scripture reading as we continue this series called Jesus is King, as Tiffany mentioned. And um, the title for the message is Marvelous Jesus. Marvelous Jesus. Mark 12, 13. Then they sent some, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap Jesus in his words. When they came to him, they said, Teacher, we know that you are truthful. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but you teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, I think with a smile, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So they brought a coin, and Jesus asked them, whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they were utterly amazed at him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your wisdom. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for working with this guy, John Mark, through the sermons of Peter, through the testimony of Peter, to capture, to preserve these words for us to contemplate, for us to meditate, and for us to activate, for us to do, for us to see Jesus as he is and to help uh, us be shaped into that image so that we can be more like Jesus, so that we can become people of love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what does this text tell us? It tells us to pay our taxes and to pay our tithes. That's the sermon. God bless you guys. Have a great week. No, there's so much going on in this text. There's so much uh, drama happening, happening in this text that it's easy to miss unless we slow down and take a good look. <clears throat> I don't know if you realized it when you heard these words or maybe you've read these words before, but this is not a polite philosophy lesson in the tradition of the civic art of Greek rhetoric. This scene represents the battleground of all-out War, a war that is happening in the heavens and a war that is happening boots on the ground. The Pharisees and the Herodians had flattery on their lips and violence in their heart. The scene Mark records here is a fierce battle in an ancient war that didn't just begin a, a few days ago in the narrative when Jesus rode in on a donkey. 
It didn't just begin when Jesus turned over tables and fashioned a whip. It didn't just begin when Jesus taught in the temple and made it explicit that he was indeed a king. It didn't just begin here lately. This is a cosmic war that in fact began before creation itself. Dr. Gary Bashirs, who participated in last week's commissioning ceremony, um, taught something in our seminary class that has had a profound impact on the way that I view Scripture, the way that I view uh, God, and the way that he works in the world. When he reads Genesis 1, he says there's already a cosmic war happening. Before Genesis 1-1, there's already a war happening. Genesis 1-1, of course, says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But did you know that Jesus said in John 8, 44, that the devil was a murderer before the beginning. He was a murderer and a liar before the universe was created. I wish I had time to unpack all of that. Maybe we'll do a series through Genesis someday. But Dr. Bashirs and others say that we were created in a war zone. And then what does God do? God creates humanity and he creates us in his image, in his likeness, and then he gives us a mission. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue. The word subdue is a, it's a war word, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a, war, a word of battle. What are they subduing? where they are subduing their spiritual enemies. Humans, we are God's blessable, image-bearing covenant partners whose mission is to create more image-bearing, blessable covenant partners who form communities of justice, generosity, beauty, faithfulness, all the good stuff. That's our job. So here's what I want you to see. When God gave a mission to humans, it was itself an act of war against his spiritual enemies. What kind of war does Jesus wage? What are the weapons of Jesus' warfare? How does Jesus win a debate? Yeah, that's helpful. But how does Jesus wage war? You know, today, if you go on ESPN.com or SB Nation, or you, you look for an article about, you know, look on the sports page of the newspaper, you're going to see keys to the Super Bowl, how the war is going to be won. Of course, they're going to say things that they always say, right? The war is going to be won in the trenches. Whoever protects the quarterback best is going to win. Uh, whoever wins the turnover battle, that's who's going to win the, the game tonight. Um, Whoever, ha whoever, um, whoever has uh, the most consistency on third down, that's who's going to win the battle. What does Jesus have in mind when he confronts his enemies? What how does he win an argument, so to speak? I think we all have ways that we approach arguments when we uh, sense threat or we sense that our integrity is being questioned or, or something along those lines. We have ways that we uh, step into an argument. And, uh, you know, there, there's the fight or flight. In my family of origin, 
we just like to get things out in the open and just let's just talk about it. Let's just that's our that's our way of showing love, I guess, is just to is just to just to argue about it. Uh, some of you come from a family culture that that is the case. Others of you are more quiet and reserved, and you need to go think about it. You need to go process it. Don't force me to talk about it right now. My wife comes from that kind of family of origin. And every once in a while, if, if you push her far enough, if I push her far enough, I've never done that. Never once have I pushed her far enough. But if I were to do that, hypothetically speaking, um, I might get something out of her that's, that, that is a ferocious uh, response. She might engage with me in the way that she feels like I've been engaging with her. Um, Ruth is one of the most intelligent people I know. And it sounds like a setup, doesn't it? <laughs> what well, is coming next? Uh, she is one, she's watching. Baby, I love you. I'm sorry. She's one of the most intelligent people I know. But sometimes she just gets the gist of things, and, and it comes out in the wrong way. And uh, in, in one particular argument, um, Ruth got mad, and what she wanted to say was either you're making a mountain out of a molehill, or that doesn't matter, a hill of beans. What she said was, you're making a mountain out of a hill of beans, and slammed the door. And then she thought, you know what? I don't think that's right. But I've already slammed the door. I, I don't know that I can just come back and correct. He's just going to have to figure it out. It's a, it's a riddle that he's going to have to figure out. How does Jesus engage in warfare? Well, what we see in the beginning pages of, of Scripture is that God's acts of war are always always acts of goodness. How does Jesus engage in battle? Jesus always moves into battle, even with people who are siding with his spiritual enemy. He always moves in with grace. I think we see that in the text that we just read. We can tend to read that as a gotcha moment. Jesus Got him. He's smarter than them. You can't outsmart Jesus. He won the debate. I told you so. My God is smarter than your God. He's bigger than your God. He's better than your God. But I think if we take a closer look, we see three things that the Spirit is inviting us to see, a way of life. The first is this. I think that we are invited to see as Jesus sees here are these enemies of Yahweh pretending to be on the side of Yahweh. They're preserving a way of life. They are, they're, they're preserving a way of life that has, in many ways, if they're part of the Sanhedrin, they are part of the upper echelon. They are the rich of the rich in that society. The Herodians and the Pharisees don't get along. But if you know anything about ancient warfare, there are, two, there are really two sides in every conflict, but it's less about boundaries, um, you know, physical boundaries. Uh, you, you have more in common with the upper echelon across the border than you do with the lower echelon, if you're part of the upper echelon. And the, and the people in the lower class have more in common with the people in the lower class across the border than they do 
with the upper class in their own community. And here come these two rival philosophies banding together against Jesus, who doesn't even have a coin. The word trap, when it says they came to trap Jesus, in verse 13 it says, then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. It, it, there's, a, there's a Greek word that's only used here in the New Testament, and it has the connotation of violent pursuit. I said it earlier. They had flattery on their lips and violence in their heart. Now, when you and I perceive threat, we're, we're, there's a part of our brain that is created. We scan the room, and we, we can't help it. It's unconscious. We scan the room, and we look for threat. When we perceive threat, how do we respond? And in this text, we're invited to see as Jesus sees. What was Jesus' policy? Jesus had a policy toward his enemies. Anybody know what it was? Say it if you know it. What was Jesus' strict enemy policy? What was it? Love. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, if you've got your Bibles, turn there. Let's just, let's just quickly look at it together. I want you to see this. We're going to see as Jesus sees. Flip over to Matthew chapter 5. And let's look at verse, uh, let's look at verses, let's start with verse 43. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Don't miss how revolutionary that thought was. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward? Well, you have. Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you do, doing that's out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles, basically those who are far from God, don't those, they do the same? Be perfect, or that word perfect means be complete. Be being made complete, therefore, as your heavenly Father is complete and full and whole. So Jesus policy toward his enemies is love, is to do good. How is Jesus doing good to the Herodians and the Pharisees? Jesus is faced with this actual aggressive threat. They want to kill him. They want to murder Jesus. But notice how calm Jesus seems. Notice how he does not seem to be the least bit threatened by these guys. You know, in all the movies, when, um, when you see the tough guy, the guy that you know, the protagonist who's in the bar or whatever, and this threat comes, you notice how calm the protagonist is. All these other guys are getting uh, riled up, and they, they're threatening to beat the guy up, and, and, and he's calm. Maybe think of a Bruce Willis um, and, and, and you just don't want to push him past, past this point. He doesn't want to enact violence. Jesus is not going to enact violence. He is the Lord of all creation. 
So of course he's not anxious. Notice the question Jesus asks. I think is profoundly insightful to what's on Jesus' mind. Two words. Whose image? Whose image? What we focus on determines who we become. The person you see yourself as or the personas that you allow into your life determine how you respond to threat. Jesus seems unfazed, but the story you live in is the story you live out. So the story you tell yourself about what's going to make you happy, what's going to make you safe, what's going to make you comfortable, what's going to make you complete is the story that you live out. It's interesting to see what image we take on, particularly when we feel threatened. Um, when most of us feel threatened, perceived, or real, we tend to take on one of two postures I mentioned a, a moment ago. We either fight or we flee. We attack or we retreat. Um, some fighters, sometimes fighters flee and sometimes fleers fight. But what image do you take on? Which of these do you take on? Jesus saw his world through the eyes of Scripture. His ears were tuned to the voice of the Spirit. His mouth was filled with prayer and worship and grace and truth. Jesus saw himself as his Father saw him. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Everywhere Jesus went, I, I imagine him seeing this banner over him. I don't know if it was in Aramaic or Greek or Hebrew, but the word beloved. How would you live your life? How would you engage your family? How would you engage your spouse? How would you walk into work every day if you saw yourself with that banner over your head? I'm a beloved child of God. Would it release the tensions over the way that the day went, the way that your plans went, the way that your hopes are, the way that your dreams are? Would it release the tension if you saw yourself as beloved? That's how Jesus saw himself. What was with this coin? Well, the question about paying taxes to Caesar was predictable in Jerusalem and particularly in and around the temple. Uh, in Judea, in the southern part of Israel, money and goods just went directly to, to the Romans, whereas in Galilee, where Jesus was from, the, the, the money was funneled to Rome through Herod Antipas. The Herodians, in other words, are standing there and it's providing this pressure. The tax is referred to uh, as an imperial tax. And the amount required to satisfy this poll tax was one denarius, which is an average daily wage in, Par in Palestine, in Israel. So a denarius was uh, a Roman silver coin and on one side, you would see this semi-divine bust of Tiberius Caesar. And Jesus says, whose inscription is on it? What was the inscription where, you know, we have in God, we trust on our money? Or, or uh, what was it? E pluribus unum, um, out of the many one is on our, you know, our money. Uh, the inscription on this was Tiberius Caesar de V Augusti Filius Augustus, which means... Trans, uh, translated Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine. 
Augustus. And then on the back side was the image of Caesar's mama, Livia, beautiful Livia. And the inscription was Pontifex Maximus, the high priest. So here were people representing a kind of high priest, representing um, Caiaphas, representing the Jerusalem temple. And they have in their hand a different high priest, Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And they're asking Jesus, who is in fact Lord, what should we do with this coin? What should we do with this day's wage? The question of the Pharisees and the Herodians is, of course, intended to imperil Jesus in compromise. Support for taxation will discredit him in the eyes of the people, whereas refusal to pay the tax will bring the Roman imperium down on him. They want to trap Jesus. They want Jesus to stop what it is that he's doing. But Jesus doesn't see the, the images of power and progress in the same way that the world does. He's not threatened by Caesar or Herod or anybody else. He's not threatened by Caiaphas. He's not threatened by religious power, political power, cultural power in any way. He's not the least bit threatened. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 19, the Apostle Paul embodies this uh, and, and gives further language to this idea. It says, from now on then, we don't know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, we see as Jesus sees. We no longer see one another in this way. If anyone is in Christ, we see one another this way. She, he, is a new creation the old has passed away. See as Jesus sees. The new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. So what does Jesus say? In light of this coin, Jesus says, yeah, give it to him. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. See, seeing Jesus, seeing as Jesus sees, naturally leads us then to the next thing. To give as Jesus gives. The second part of that verse in verse 17, Jesus says, give to God the things that are God. This little phrase is staggering in its scope. Jesus is pointing out how little, how petty this little issue is that you've brought before me. He's not shaming them for doing it, but he's saying, expand your scope. What belongs to God? What doesn't belong to God? Give to God that which belongs to God. Is there anything in the cosmos that does not belong to God? From the smallest to the greatest, Jesus saw that it all belongs to God. What will we have then? What will I have if I give it all to God? What will I have left? Well, I mean, sincerely, if you give it all to God, what will you have left? That's a very good question. 
And the answer depends on the image, whose image you see. You see, if you see yourself as unloved and alone, well, that makes sense. To get more, to consume more, to recreate, procreate, do deals and die. That's the meaning of life. If, 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 all this, if this life is all you have, then that's all we have to offer is, is to consume, to recreate, to procreate, to go do deals and die, to, to, to win the battle on the, in the marketplace, to win the, win the battle in relationships. If you're utterly alone and unloved, then you have to pull love in every direction. But if you see that banner over yourself as beloved, it changes the way you view everything. It changes the way you view your resources, your time, your energy. It often leads to expressions of materialism if you see yourself as alone. You see yourself through, you see life through the lens of scarcity. Fear leads to materialism. Sometimes materialism, which has at least two sides, has, is kind of a multivalent thing. Um, sometimes it leads to putting too much value in having things. Having things makes us feel better. In fact, it does. Actually, it does. Getting something new actually works, almost. It does. You get something that, you, especially you saved up, you work for it, you get it, you celebrate. Yes! And it works, almost. Works for a minute, and then it stops working. And then if you're good at it, you add more and you add more, and, and something happens over time. The things you get have kind of a half-life of joy. You get that first big thing, and you got, and you got some kind of joy on download. And then you find out it doesn't satisfy. I remember when Ruth and I first got married, we didn't think we could afford a house. Can you believe that? <laughs> Tulsa, Oklahoma, we didn't think we could afford a house. Sincerely, we were going into debt, paying for our little apartment. We didn't think we could afford a house. And finally, we qualified for a loan. We got an $80,000 home. We qualified. We couldn't believe they're giving us this much money for a home. We borrowed a little bit of money, $2,000 from our dad, from my dad to put down. So the loan was $78,000 and it felt amazing. We have a home. We threw a big party and man, did it feel good. We cleaned up that home. We marched around. We are homeowners, you guys. We used to not be homeowners, and now we are homeowners. Jesus saved us from a life of not being homeowners, from apart that apartment life. He rescued us, and now we have a piece of concrete, a 900-square-foot home. You know how long that lasted? Not long. And then we got a bigger home, and it didn't last. We got a car a new car, and that didn't last. Materialism has a half-life of joy. It works. But the more you get and the more you feed that thing, the more it leads to a life of despair. Dallas Willard says, the spiritually wise person has known that frivolous consumption corrupts the soul away from trust in and worship of 
and service to God. Proverbs 23 tells us acquiring and owning more than we actually need only wears us out. But there are other types of materialism too. There's another type of materialism, we call them poverty mentality, that says that having something actually is negative, that you can't be a good person, that rich people are evil. Everybody who has things are, are, are evil. And the problem is that with that kind of philosophy is that things still hold a power over you. It just has an obverse effect. I used to be a big Pearl Jam fan. Can I just be honest with you? I was in a Pearl Jam cover band in college. We were pretty awesome. At least we thought we were. But if you will humor me for a moment, I want to quote um, from actually one of Eddie Vedder's solo albums. He's got a song called Society, and, and I think he hits on something here. Sometimes these guys have a prophetic voice that, that just needs to be redeemed. So I'm going to redeem these words today. He says, oh, I'm not going to sing it. What are you guys saying, thinking? I'm not going to sing this. He says, it's a mystery to me. We have agreed with which we have agreed. And you think you have to want more than you need. Until you have it all, you won't be free. Society, you're a crazy breed. I hope you're not lonely without me. There's those thinking more or less that less is more. But if less is more, how are you keeping score? Means for every point you make, your level drops. Kind of like you're starting from the top. You can't do that. Society, have mercy on me. I hope you're not angry that I disagree. Society, crazy indeed. I hope you're not lonely without me. The Spirit invites us to see as Jesus sees, and when we see as Jesus sees, we can give as Jesus gives, and that is, maybe said another way, a life of abundant simplicity. Look around this world. Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field. Consider the sparrow. Don't they have everything that they need? That is looking at the world through the eyes of abundance. And when I look at the, eye, the world through the eyes of abundance, everything I have is for Jesus. Everything I have is for God. God gives me good things. I can enjoy him through those good things. God asks me to give. I can give freely. Jesus said in John 10, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He said, this is why my father loves me, because I lay my life down so that I may take it up again. No one takes my life, but I lay it down on my own. So Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God's what is God's. And how do Jesus' enemies respond? You see, there's a way that Jesus has when he is with his enemies. He's not confrontational. He doesn't, they're confronting him, but he doesn't use their same weapons the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Jesus uses goodness and kindness and patience. That's why I said, I think he says it with a smile. Why are you testing me? 
the breathtaking love of Jesus. Jesus loves his enemies by inviting them to replace their image of goodness, their image of power, their image of abundance, their image of the good life. He's inviting them to replace that image with this image, the image of a free man who offers his life for many, including his enemies. And they marvel. John Mark, the author of Mark, does something brilliant with this narrative. He doesn't tell us what exa- uh, who exactly marveled or what happened as a result of their marveling. Rather, he leaves the narrative open so as to invite us in. What do we respond to Jesus with when we marvel? What are they marveling at? Yes, they're marveling at his words, but they're also marveling at his ways. And this is the third thing the Spirit invites us to in this text. We see as Jesus sees, we give as Jesus gives, and then we are invited to worship, to marvel at Jesus' ways, to be utterly amazed by Jesus. They are utterly amazed at him, the verse says. Another translation says, they marveled at him. This is not the first time in the Gospel of Mark that people marvel at Jesus. And so I'm, I'm going to do this as we end today. I'm going to ask you just to imagine yourself in these narratives. And how would you respond? If you're there and you're marveling at Jesus, what happens after the marveling? What happened after the marveling of the Herodians and the Pharisees? Well, we know that some of them, at least, continued to want to kill Jesus. But we also know that some of them followed Jesus. Mark chapter 5, in Mark chapter 5, Jesus healed a man possessed with a legion of demons. And it says, when they got to the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. After he had been liberated, he responds by wanting to be with Jesus, to be shaped by Jesus, to do what Jesus did. However, Jesus said, no, but he said, go to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, how he has had compassion on you. Don't you know that a man possessed by a legion of demons did some dirt? Don't you know he hurt some people? Don't you know there's a wake? There was a wake of hurt and devastation in his life. But Jesus says, go back to those people and show how God had compassion on him. And he departed, it says he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for them, for him. And what happened? All marveled. Mark chapter 6, Jesus walks on water, and when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed he was a ghost, and they cried out, and all saw him and were troubled, and immediately talked to him, talked with, uh, he talked with them, and said to them, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And when he went up into the boat, the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled. Later, After this episode that we just read today, someone else marvels. 
Jesus is interviewed by one of the most powerful Roman leaders in that region, Pontius Pilate. And it says, the chief priests accused Jesus of many things, but he answered them nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. Jesus, kind, gentle, good, beautiful, non-anxious Jesus, still answered nothing. And Pilate marveled. And then again, Mark gives us another glimpse after the crucifixion. Mark 15. Now when evening had come, because it was preparation day, that is the day before Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, what does that mean? A member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And it says, Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. Jesus really does give. He gives Caesar and Caiaphas the violent crucifixion that they needed. But Jesus gives God what is God's in his own body. How do we respond? How do you think the Herodians and Pharisees responded? Well, there are three possible responses to Jesus, to marveling at Jesus. When we see Jesus for who he really is, we can't help but marvel. And why do we marvel when you're, when, you're, when you're coming to Jesus to try to kill him and he loves you in spite of that? When you're antagonistic and adversarial toward Jesus, when you are angry at God and you cry out to God in anger and yet he loves you and he invites you in, or you just look at yourself and you see the gap between your thinking and Jesus' thinking. You think, man, I've got such a long ways to go. Or you look at Jesus' ways and you see the, the massive gap between the way Jesus lived and the way you lived, and you think, how could I ever get there? One of three responses. The first response you have on offer is this. You can reject Jesus. You can. You can reject Jesus. Many of the members of the Sanhedrin, the Herodians, the Pharisees did in fact reject Jesus, but you don't have to crucify Jesus to reject him. You can reject Jesus by just choosing another image to become like. You can reject Jesus by just choosing yourself to put yourself first. You can reject Jesus by just believing the promises on offer through the 10,000 ads you see a day. You can just reject Jesus by stepping back into that family of origin uh, way of doing things. You can reject Jesus simply by leaning on your own trust structures. The second way to respond is to reject yourself. Maybe you look at the way Jesus is and you just think, that may be good for somebody, but that's not for me. I couldn't possibly live this kind of a life. Nobody's perfect. 
Or maybe you say, you don't know what I've done. I, I'm disqualified. I, I've tried it and it didn't work. I cannot be like Jesus. I'm not as bad as I was, but I will never live up to your idea of good, Christians. I'll never be as good as you want me to be. So just forget it. Rejection of self is the second way to respond when you marvel at Jesus. Henry Nouwen writes, success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of a much larger temptation of self-rejection. We have come to believe the voices that call us worthless and unlovable. Success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions to our desolate condition. We accept it as fact that we deserve to be pushed aside and rejected. We see ourselves that way. Self-rejection, Nowen says, is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us beloved. Being called beloved constitutes the core truth of your existence. Holy Spirit doesn't invite us into this particular way of life to marvel at Jesus in order to taunt us to say, you could never be this. He doesn't hold up this standard and say, be holy as I am holy to shake a finger at you. He offers something so much more beautiful. You can reject Jesus. We can reject ourselves. Or the third option is this is to repent. Repent is a word that's been hijacked in our culture by people in the name of Jesus who really are shaking their finger at culture, preaching fire and brimstone. But the word repent was never meant to be an angry word. The word repent was never meant to be a shameful word. The word repent is always meant to be a hopeful word, a beautiful word, a gracious word. The word repent is an invitation from a father who loves you, who calls you beloved. Repentance simply means a change of mind leading to a change of action. When Jesus rep preached, repent for the kingdom is, is at hand, he was not pointing a finger or shaking a fist, but offering rescue. He's throwing a life preserver. How do you respond to marveling at Jesus? Do you step into a life of repentance? a life of surrender, a life of abundance, a life of hope? Do you participate in that rescue by first being rescued? Repentance disavows the voices that tell you you're not enough. Repentance renounces the voices that say you should reject Jesus. And it steps into the gap. It falls headlong into the arms of a father who is, wants to embrace you and love you. 
And this one word always precedes revival. Last week, two friends on their way up from San Diego had two different prophetic words for Reality Santa Barbara. Can I give them to you? They're beautiful. My friend Joff, on his way up, he was praying for us. He was praying for us as a church community. And he said the word that kept coming up is this, the harvest is bountiful. The harvest in Santa Barbara is bountiful. The harvest is bountiful. The harvest is bountiful. That means there are people all around you every single day that not only need Jesus, but they want Jesus. That if we will step into those spaces, the harvest is bountiful. And he said this, Stephen, here's the thing. What comes after that, what Jesus says after that, is that the laborers are few. But I felt very distinct, uh, a distinct reservation to that part of the verse. He said, the word I got is the harvest is bountiful. The, the, the laborers are not few in this church, in this congregation, in this community. The laborers are everywhere. And God is at work. If we will step into that bountiful harvest, he wants to use you. But the other word from my dear friend Bree is that repentance is the conduit to blessing. When I look at the ways of Jesus, as I invite the worship team to come, I often am discouraged, honestly, because how I was yesterday and the day before felt like two steps back. Feels like sometimes I take one step toward becoming more like Jesus, and then something happens to knock me off center, and I do something that I can't believe I did, or I say something I can't believe I said. And my three responses in marveling at Jesus are the same. Sometimes I want to reject Jesus. Sometimes I want to reject myself. But I feel the Spirit leading me and us today to say yes to his invitation, to marvel at Jesus, and to move into repentance, to be being perfected, to be being made complete. You don't have to solve all of it today. But is there one thing in worship you can go to God and confess to him? Is there one thing you can go to God today and say, make me more like Jesus in this specific area? Can we today respond in repentance? I invite us to worship, to marvel at the goodness of our beautiful Savior. And when you lift your hand and when you lift your voice, you're participating in spiritual warfare by a radical act of goodness in this world. Let's worship God together.